0: David said, shall I go and attack these Philistines? The Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, look, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? And David inquired of the Lord once again. And the Lord answered in him, said, arise, go down to Keilah, for I will deliver the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah, fought with the Philistines, struck them with a mighty blow, took away their livestock. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. It's an amazing thing that David would engage in war with the Philistines in his current condition. He's just written Psalm 142 and 143. He probably has not yet written Psalm 152, but he has no army, no supplies, and 600 discontented fearful men with him. It's incredible that David would even ask the question, should I go to war? Right? But sometimes God's solution for us in our season of weakness, depression, and discouragement is to go on the attack. Sometimes the solution, the best defense is actually an aggressive offense, right? And I don't know if you guys have ever experienced this in ministry, but sometimes the enemy's knocked you back on your heels. There's some place in your life where you're in compromise or some place in your life that you're struggling. And God sends a person with a greater need than your need. And it requires you to press into God. Uh, I I remember, you know, one of the first, uh, I was dealing with addictions when I first got saved, and one of the most powerful things that drew me out of my place of compromise was I got a job at a summer camp, and I had to take responsibility for believers that were younger than me. And I knew I couldn't, if I was going to teach them the Bible, I couldn't be living in compromise myself, right? And so God put me in a position, of, uh, a position of leadership that I didn't deserve because I guess he knew in my heart that that position of responsibility would cause me to, to respond and step up out of that depression and compromise and into a place of reliance and dependence upon the Lord. So many times the Lord speaks to us and calls us to attack. So David's men, they're fearful to go and there's... Uh, no way to convince them that this is the Lord. But David, in his place of weakness and brokenness, he's told lies. He's caused tragedies, resulted in the death of, of God's priests. But David asks twice if this is the Lord's will. He wants to make sure he's not operating in presumption. And God doesn't mind giving us confirmation. When we're tuning into his voice and when we're in humility putting ourselves before him, it, God is not offended when we ask, when we ask more than once, Right? And we press into him to really hear him. And the power of God manifests through David and his men. And it says that that David struck the, uh, the Philistines with a mighty blow. The spirit of might is actually released through David, even though he's been in a very difficult time. And that mighty blow of the Lord is the Lord's anointing for deliverance. And isn't it interesting that his mighty blow comes through a broken vessel? And God still works the same way. Today, In the midst of his own trial, he manifests the power of God through David. God's power to bring deliverance, this is point F on page two, through your life does not work mostly based upon your recent track record with God. Whether you've done good or bad is not the main issue with God when it relates to his grace upon your life on behalf of others. See, the grace of God is imparted imparted upon your life to enable you to operate in the anointing, to bring deliverance and blessing to others, Right? And so even though we should have godly character and we should walk in wholeheartedness and abandonment to God, and that's the way we want to live, not even so much for the sake of others as much as for the sake of our own hearts with God, right? We'll find time and time again that even in your weak condition, even in that condition where you go, God, I can't believe I made that mistake or I thought these thoughts or those words came out of my mouth. God, you'd never, I'm disqualified. You would never use me. That's the very one who in the the brokenness of their condition, God wants to demonstrate his miraculous power through. If God only used whole, healthy, uh, strong people, we would all be in a lot of trouble, wouldn't we? Because none of us would ever get used for (laughs) anything if we only got used on days that we felt qualified and up to the task, right? But God loves to use weak, broken vessels because it actually amplifies His glory. Because people look and they go, there's no way Hazen did that. That was God. That was God. Everybody goes, "Mm mm-hmm, I know that. In order for David to operate in God's anointing for deliverance, he had to lay aside his own condemnation and self-pity. He had to be willing to ask the question, but once he asked the question and he received the response of the Lord, he moves forward in faith despite the personal adversity of his season. And he actually goes and does that which God has anointed him to do, to deliver the people of God from the Philistines, even though everything about his present circumstances said you should be concerned with your own situation, your own circumstances. You're not qualified, David, to be a deliverer. You can barely save yourself, but he goes and delivers the city of Keilah because the word of the Lord came to him. And so God's not much interested either in our inability or our weakness, nor is he interested in our pedigree or accomplishments. When it comes to his plan and desires to move through us, it's really based upon his grace and your willingness And when we understand that, we will make ourselves available to God even in our weakness. And our own weakness won't be a hindrance to believing and putting confidence in God even in the most difficult of circumstances. Amen. And isn't it funny, this next little section, that where God sends David as a deliverer, the hearts of the people he goes to deliver turn against him and he betrays him. And David experiences this time and time again. The Lord, and it's part of this pattern in which God works in David's life to continually work meekness and mercy into the heart of his servant. For Samuel 23, Saul told uh, that David had gone to Kiah. So Saul, so Saul said, God has delivered him into my hand. And he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And this was something else that stood out to me as I studied this passage. It's very interesting. There are a few, different people where, a few different places where people claim to have the word of the Lord throughout these stories that we're going to read tonight. And here's another example where Saul goes, Look, the Lord is working on my behalf. He's entrapped David for me, right? And, and did, did the Lord send David to Keilah? Yes, but Saul wrongly interpreted God's activity because he could not understand God's heart. And he actually discerned something rightly as God's activity, but he couldn't enter into what God was doing because he did not carry God's heart. And so one thing that's so important in discerning God's activity in your life or in the activity, the activity of God in the lives of others is not just that we recognize God's supernatural hand or God's Movements and be able to say that's God, but then we would actually understand what God is doing because we so deeply identify with his character and who he is. And we'll come back to that point several times. But obviously, Saul discerns perhaps that David has gone to Keilah with purpose, right? But he does not understand. He thinks that purpose is for his benefit when in fact the Lord has departed from him. Saul called all the people together for war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. When David knew that Saul plotted evil against him, he said to Abathar, the priest, bring the ephod here. And David said, O Lord God of Israel, your servant and certainly heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city for my sake. Will the men of Keilah deliver me into his hands? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. And the Lord said, well, the men of Keilah deliver me and my men into the hand of Saul. And the Lord said, they will deliver you. So David and his men, about 600, arose and departed from Keilah and went wherever they could go. And it was told Saul, uh, to Saul that David had escaped from Keilah. So he halted the expedition. I think this is very interesting, too, because in this particular case, we see in the other story, the ephod was not involved in David's interaction, Right. He just goes to the Lord in inquiry. And it's so interesting because sometimes we get into rhythms of how God communicates. But we see a lot of times, even in the same person's life, even in the same period of time, there are different ways in which God communicates with his servants. And for whatever reason, the previous time, David's just having a conversation and says, should I go down to Keilah? The Lord says, go down, strike them and deliver them. And then in this situation... For whatever reason, David feels stirred, I'm going to go and I'm going to hear through the ephod and I'm going to bring the priest. And that's something we have to be attuned to in our lives is not only do we need to have the heart of God and understand the heart of God to be able to discern the word of the Lord, but we also need to recognize the word of the Lord doesn't always come to us in the exact same way. You know, if you study Acts chapter 10, it's an amazing story because there's so many different ways that the word of God manifests In that story, an angel appears to Cornelius says go to uh, go to simon the tanner 's house there 's a man there named his surname's Peter go get Peter and when you ask him to come he 's going to tell you tell you in your household about salvation and so Peter then has a trance, and then after the trance, the Holy Spirit speaks to him and says there are men coming to get you and then Peter actually goes to the house, preaches the gospel, and the Holy Spirit falls. Uh, in the middle of his message. And so you see through the agency of angels, through a trance and a vision, through the still small voice, through human messengers, and then through the inbreaking of the Holy Spirit, God is speaking all the same message, but five different ways in that exact story. And so that just reinforces this point that God is constantly pulling on (laughs) us. And you wonder that you read that story and you go, he just had a trance from heaven. Why does the Holy Spirit have to whisper to him to interpret the trance, right? And Cornelius has an angel come and tell him, and what does the angel tell him? Go get this guy to preach the message to him. Don't you think the angel from the throne room of God was probably qualified to preach the gospel to Cornelius? But God has prescribed means by which He wants to work, and so in this case, He wanted the intermediary of the priest and the ephod, so that David was not, so that David had to learn dependence through on hearing God's voice on relationship with those around him. So. It's just a, a fascinating story. And again, you see, what was, the, what was the conversation that David had? This is why we always have to remain in continual dialogue with the Lord. Lord, what do you want me to do? Go down to Keilah and deliver them. See, if we don't remain in continual communion with God, wouldn't you think based on the last thing God told you that you'd be safe in the city that he sent you to, to deliver? You would think that, right? But you would assume... Right, but you know what they say about assuming. <laughs> Makes a donkey out of you. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so, David's faced with a new situation. He doesn't just live off of yesterday's bread. He says, I need a new revelation from heaven. And it's so interesting in this story also, God answers the questions that David specifically asks. He goes, uh, will Saul come down? Yes. Will the people of Keilah deliver me into his hands? Yes. So David leaves. And isn't it interesting that Saul doesn't go to Keilah to deliver them when they're under siege from the Philistines, but he raises a whole army to go after David. It's likely that David has been laboring Keilah for weeks, perhaps months. And uh, when when he asks, will the men turn on him? The Lord answers yes, and Keilah would turn David over to Saul because of their fear of Saul or the monetary reward that Saul would give them. Page 3, 1 Samuel 23, 14. David stayed in the stronghold in the wilderness and remained in the mountains of the wilderness of Ziph. So he's driven out of the city of Keilah, and it says, Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. See, the way God trains worshiping warrior kings is by allowing them to experience the continual attack of the enemy, literally every day for a season. Why was he in Judah? Why was he in Keilah? Because of the word of the Lord. I take it, I take it Cassie, you feel that. Oh, I mean, it <laughs> you feel that. Yes, I feel it. <laughs> but that's, and you would think, is the attack of the Lord because I'm, Strayed in some disobedience? Well, it could be, and it's good to inspect your heart. But remember, Luke chapter 4. The Holy Spirit led Jesus out into the wilderness where he was tempted for 40 days by the devil. Perhaps you're experiencing the daily attack of the enemy, not because you're in compromise or sin, but because you're exactly where God wants you to be. And I believe God's witnessing and comforting voice We'll speak to you in that place if there's compromise, if there's sin. And of course, there's always places where God is refining and working more deeply the character of Christ in us. But, the, but the, oftentimes the enemy accuses you and goes, you wouldn't be feeling this way. You wouldn't be thinking these thoughts. You wouldn't be dealing with these things if there wasn't something wrong with you. And the reality is the reason you're experiencing the assault of the enemy is because you are exactly where God has strategically placed you. And he's allowing the oppression of the enemy. See, this is... It must be such a bummer to be the devil, because what happens is he becomes the most sanctifying. When we respond rightly to the Lord, the enemy's enemy observes us and he goes, well, this person has a little struggle with pride. So he hammers us in the area of pride. But if we will in that moment recognize and then the Holy Spirit comes and convicts us in that place of temptation because it gets conflated by the enemy's attack. Right and so we feel that tug on we maybe have a natural struggle with pride now the enemy brings tries to work circumstances to turn that pride into anger and we and we end up getting tripped up in our pride and now we're brokenhearted because oh god i'm so prideful and you know, I, I, my friend confronted me about weakness, and I puffed up my chest and said, no way. And then afterwards, I was convicted, and I realized, man, that wasn't a meek or humble, that wasn't a Christ-like response. And, you know, the enemy tries to come on you in condemnation in that place, and you're experiencing that continual attack. But in that moment, the Holy Spirit invites you. says, okay, go ahead. You know, First John 1, 9, confess your sins, and every time faithful and just to cleanse you of all. And I said, Lord, I'm so sorry. And just, that place in your life that's been flying under the radar, that place of weakness, that place of a little bit of iniquity, that place of compromise, it's now been amplified by the enemy's temptation. You've prayed and repented. And now it's become that place of of, uh, fleshliness has now been sanctified by the work of the Holy Spirit. And you go forward now, and man, the devil loses big time. And now you're a greater embodiment of the person of Christ because of the place where the enemy tempted you, and, and you've, been, you've just received an acceleration in your conforming to Christ because of the assault of the enemy. That must be such an unfortunate thing to be the devil. <laughs> when the people of God respond to his attacks by fleeing into the refuge of Christ and the Holy Spirit. And that's what we see over and over again in David's life. Is David doesn't always do things right, but he never wastes an opportunity to learn a lesson in God. So challenges they work for us in several ways. Challenges work tenderness and compassion in our hearts for others. They cause us to lean into God with aggression. Oftentimes, you know, it's like when we start to get a little dull, I think God allows Challenges allows the enemy because it stirs us out of that place of complacency, or perhaps that's just me. And they give an opportunity, oftentimes, for a dramatic breaking of God. As some may say, there Ain't no testimony without a test. First <laughs> Samuel twenty three. <laughs> 15 through 18, we're going to read now Jonathan and David's last meeting. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life and David was in the wilderness of Ziph in a forest and Jonathan, Saul's son, arose, went to David in the woods and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, do not fear for the hand of Saul, my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel and I shall be next to you. Even my father Saul knows that. For the two of them made a covenant before the Lord and David stayed in the woods and Jonathan went, To his own house. What an amazing picture here! I, you know, the the Jonathan's name actually means helper, Um, and I believe there was a prophetic destiny on Jonathan's life that he recognized. um, To kind of he gives you know there's I think you guys uh, Billy taught on this a few weeks back. He actually gives his robe and his armor and different things to David and actually says, David, you're gonna be king. And and he basically goes, the the thing that his father wanted for him, Jonathan was supposed to be the extension of Saul's lineage. And he recognizes that's not God's plan for my life. God wants David as the anointed one over him. And so Jonathan gets on board with God's plan, even to his personal detriment. What a beautiful picture of the servant heart of the Lord. And here he's affirming again, what, what I think God has shown him prophetically that David's supposed to be king and that Jonathan's supposed to be his covenant brother and by his side and to fulfill the, the purpose for which he was named, to be a helper and to be a, 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 an aid and to, be, um, to receive great glory in the eternal age because he said yes to the plan of God for his life. But sadly, Jonathan had an unsanctified, I believe an unsanctified loyalty to his father. If you look at point C, It's based on the fear of man rather than obedience to God. When his covenant with David began to infringe upon his lifestyle, he did not stand with David. David remained in the woods, and Jonathan, though he he had these promises from God to be with David, he returns back to his his, uh, lifestyle in the palace. And this ends up being the last time Jonathan sees David. Jonathan is in covenant with a man who is anointed to defeat the Philistines, but he ends up dying at the hands of the Philistines. And Jonathan prophesies God's plan for him as well as David. It's God's will for Jonathan to be ruling alongside David when David became king of Israel. But because Jonathan was unwilling to be with David in the wilderness, he was disqualified from ruling one day with David in the palace. And so now again, David, though he's been strengthened through his friendship with Jonathan, the Ziphites, they are people that lived there in the land where David was hiding. they come to Saul and they say, Is David not hiding with us in the strongholds in the woods, in the hills of Hakailah, which is uh, the south of Jeshimon? And the Ziphites betrayed David into Saul's hands because they were afraid of Saul. And so we see again this this just ongoing pattern uh, that's working in David's life to refine his character. Point B on page 4. David is almost completely surrounded by Saul is facing certain destruction. First Samuel 23, 25 through 27. When Saul and his men went to seek him, they told David, Therefore he went down to the rock, stayed in the wilderness of Moan. And then Saul heard that he pursued David in the wilderness, and Saul went to one side of a mountain, and David and his men are on the other side of the mountain. So David made haste to get away for Saul, for Saul and his men were encircling David and his men to take them. But a messenger came to Saul, saying, Hasten and come, for the Philistines have invaded the land. See, God uses this circumstance to make it clear that he can stop Saul whenever he wants. He puts David within the reach of Saul. He puts, and he's done this to David, pretty much David's whole life. He puts him in front of a giant and then, and then God slays the giant in front of David. He puts him in the court of a demonized king. The demonized king is throwing spears at him, right? And then God delivers, delivers David, you know, and, and, uh, and it just continues to be that pattern. He sends him to Keilah. The, Keilah, the folks in Keilah are going to betray him. And David escapes. And it's this ongoing pattern in his life in which he comes right up, the, right up to the precipice of being utterly destroyed. And God again and again snatches him. And there's just one simple lesson that, that God is trying to work in David's heart, which is trust in my mercy. Trust in my goodness. Trust that I'm able, even though when it seems like you're about to Uh, that's all about to end and and things you're you're literally being encircled by your enemy with bloodlust to kill you and then all of a sudden the situation shifts and God delivers you yet again and so when we see in Psalm 54 uh, this is actually a psalm that was written directly out of this circumstance it's when uh, the Ziphites came and said to Saul is not David hiding himself among us And I'll just read this to you, encourage you. These psalms are powerful and to go back and perhaps study them. Um, We won't have time tonight to spend uh, much time going in depth on them, but I'll just read this one. Save me, O God, by your name and vindicate me by your strength. This is a picture into what's happening in David's heart as he's experiencing these trials and this back and forth that we're describing. Vindicate me by your strength. Hear my prayer, O God. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen up against me. Oppressors have sought my life. They have not set God before them. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is with those who uphold my life. He will repay my enemies for their evil and cut them off in your truth. I will freely sacrifice to you. I will praise your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me out of all trouble and my eye has seen its desire upon my enemies. Hallelujah. Does he sound like a guy that's continually saved? By just a hair's breadth. <laughs> he sounds pretty confident. But his confidence is not being dictated to him by his circumstances. We have to grasp that. You read that psalm and it sounds like David is experiencing the complete destruction of his enemies. When in fact his circumstances continue to spiral into worse and worse and even you know, closer and closer, he's being literally encircled and he writes and he says, no, my eyes will see. See, those are the eyes of faith. My eyes will see what I desire to see upon my enemies. He's seeing with the eyes of faith, the ultimate fruition of God's deliverance. And he's declaring it to come. Why? Because of his own goodness? No, because his God is good and God is his helper. And God can and will use us regardless of our track record or our ability. He takes pleasure in using weak and broken to bring deliverance to the weak and broken. And when God uses the broken to heal others who are broken, he's the only one who can receive the glory. God's plan is to form and fashion the human heart. And it's not primarily about singular or isolated situations as Ruth Ellen mentioned earlier, God forms the human heart over long periods. Say with me, long periods of time. Through many moments of instruction in multiple circumstances. See, David is a great example of how, like we like to go, well, I had that one situation where God had to deliver me. I learned my lesson, God, you're a deliverer, right? Right. But what God wants to do is he wants to so deeply work this into the fabric of your being that your confidence in his ability to deliver is unshaken, though the circumstances that he has to deliver you from get worse and worse and worse, right? Though the concepts, we may comprehend them in a few moments, such as we may comprehend in this room that God is a deliverer and that when we trust in his mercy... Um, learning of that at the heart level takes many years through revelation and impartation is experiential knowledge through life circumstances that work the truths into our hearts and release the character of the Lord into our lives. So I just want you to reflect for a moment. Where is there a revelation that you've, you've understood in your mind, but you've seen God has brought that revelation or circumstance up for you time and time again? And all you have to do is maybe think about your most painful life experiences, and there's probably three or four things that God... It might be the lesson of forgiveness. It might be the lesson of meekness. It might be the lesson of God as a healer. It might be a lesson... I mean, I don't know what the lesson is. There's so many that he's probably teaching to so many of us. But, you know, when you look at David's story, there's this recurring principle Mm -hmm. That because of God's relationship with David, David could trust God to deliver him. Even though David was weak, God was going to be strong on his behalf. And God taught him that lesson over and over again. I just want you to take 60 seconds right now and reflect on what are the lessons that God has taught you that he has reinforced through your life experience time and time again. And I'll just play some soft music for you to consider. Just kidding. follow-up question you can ask the Lord on your own devotional time is, okay God, if this is a lesson, maybe you're having a realization even tonight that there's something that God's been trying to teach you. Lord, where have I been resisting this lesson? So that you have to continue to bring circumstances up. If you want relief from that situation that keeps happening in your life, that is formative to you, but very painful, perhaps consider how could I yield to God's instruction in this particular area of my life. And then you could move on to a new lesson. <laughs> That's encouraging, right? All right. Oh, Lordy, we got 50, no, we got 30 minutes, right? Okay, Lord, help us. So I want to hit just two incredible stories that, again, demonstrate the same principle. And then we're going to come to our conclusion, which is God delivers David. It's the one-point lesson. I'm doing the Andy Stanley one-point lesson. All, of these, all these examples point to... There's, a, there's several layers of, of lessons, but there's really only one lesson that I want you to take away from tonight, which is because of God's abundant mercy to David. It wasn't so much because of who David was. But because of who God was to David and how David experienced God, that David experienced his deliverance and his mercy time and time again. I mean, David David committed all the same sins that Saul committed, right? But his response in his sinfulness to God invoked God's mercy upon his life. And so there was a revelation that David carried that though he made the same mistakes, there's something he knew about God, which was, I believe, God was merciful and God was for him. And in seeing God's mercy and seeing that God was for him, he responded differently towards God in those situations of failure or the situations of opportunity because he understood that his life was in God's hands and was being lived according to the mercy of God. So 1 Samuel 24, 26, they give us descriptive accounts of how God tests David's heart by presenting him with the opportunity to get revenge. David has an encounter with Saul in the cave of Engedi. It's clearly a divine appointment, and I'm just going to try and hit these two stories very quickly. So follow along with me. 1 Samuel 24, now it happened when Saul had returned from following the Philistines that it was told to him, take note, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. I'm on the bottom of page 5, 1 Samuel 24, 3. I'm going to pick up the pace a little bit here. So. so he came to the sheepfold by the road, and there was a cave, and Saul went in to attend to his needs. Some, some say he, he went in to attend to his needs. Some versions say he went in to relieve himself. So he's either taking a nap or taking a poop. He's doing, he's doing something there in the cave uh, to either relieve himself or attend to his needs. And uh, not necessarily all David's men were in the cave, but uh, it's likely that some of his men were there um, in the back of the cave. There's probably over a thousand men with David at this point and their families, but David's hiding in the back of this cave with a few of his men. Consider the sovereignty of God, top of page six. Who can orchestrate events as he does? God moves the pieces just as he wishes so that while Saul is pursuing David's life, he ends up going to uh, expose himself and become vulnerable in the very cave that David is hiding. 1 Samuel 24, And the men with David, they said, This is the day which the Lord said to you. Because there was a prophetic word in David's camp. And the word was, God's going to deliver Saul into your hands, David. But see, much as Saul recognized the activity of God, but because he lacked God's heart, he didn't understand how to respond in the moment, right? These men, they've heard the prophetic word. They understand that that this is a divine moment. Saul just wandered into your cave, David, and this is what's been prophesied that he would be delivered into your hands. And so they fill in the blank of the prophecy with their own false motives. And they say, this is that and what they're actually doing is uh, they're calling what would be evil good because they don't understand the heart of the Lord Says, behold I'll deliver your enemy to him that you may do to him as seems good to you and see what David understood is that was probably a, a real word from the Lord but the do as it seems good to you right that actually reveals what was in David's heart because what seemed good to David was to show mercy Because David understood, blessed are the merciful, because what will the merciful receive? Mercy. So it appears there was a prophetic word. The word was that the Lord was going to deliver Saul into David's hands. But knowing God's heart allowed David to rightly interpret God's word. Knowing, you can uh, draw that into the notes. Knowing God's heart rightly allowed David to interpret God's words. David's men were misinterpreting the word of the Lord with evil intent. And one of the principal issues for David in this moment <coughs> was trust. The question David had to answer is who is your true source of life? God alone is our source of life. Point three under F on page six, David understood that it was up to God alone to move him into the fullness of his destiny and that he was not to do it by, his, by his own, the force of his own hand. Wouldn't it seem to you that if the person trying to murder you wanders vulnerably into the cave that you're hiding in, that this is the opportunity for you to fulfill the word that's been prophesied over you? And can you imagine this picture, right, for Saul's troops? Saul goes into the cave. David comes out of the cave. And says, I'm the new king of Israel, right? Boom, just like that. But what would cause David to have to do in order to make that exchange is to raise his hand against God's anointed. And David understood that if I raise my hand against God's anointed, someone one day will raise their hand against me. But if I show mercy towards God's anointed and respect God's authority vested upon this man, then God will defend and protect me. And he actually goes and he cuts a corner off of Saul's robe, either while, while, while he's either resting or relieving himself. And, uh, and it troubles him that he did this, because the robe represented the, the office and the authority of Saul. And he's so convicted, he says, Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master. The Lord's anointed to stretch out my hand against him, seeing that he's anointed the Lord. David's heart was troubled not because he'd simply cut, uh, cut Saul's robe, but because he had subtly disdained God's chosen leadership. In Romans 13, it a- affirms this principle that governing authorities are set in place by God. David understood that, that. Top of page 7 that God is the one who appoints every authority in the earth, including those who are even those that are wicked. So, skipping down 1 Samuel 24 7. So David restrained his servant with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. We'll just skip forward a little bit to page eight. And now David follows Saul out of the cave and we have this dramatic moment. David comes out of the cave, calls out to Saul, says, my Lord and King. And Saul looks behind him out of the cave that he just walked out of. And David stopped with his face to, to the earth and bowed down. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of the men and say, indeed, David seeks you harm? Skipping down to uh, chapter 24, verse 10. Look, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you today into, into my hand in the cave. And someone urged me to kill you, but my eyes spared you. And remember what the prophecy was? Do whatever seems good to you in your, in, in your sight. Whatever your eye, whatever you desire to do, uh, and he goes, my eye has spared you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, you see the corner of your robe in my hand, for that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you. Know that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand, and I have not sinned against you, that you hunt my life to take it. Let the Lord judge between you and me, and let the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, wickedness proceeds from wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom is the king of Israel come out? Whom do you pursue? A dead dog? A flea? Therefore, let the Lord be judge and judge between you and me. See and plead my case and deliver me out of your hand. I just want to skip to point C, verse verse 12. Let the Lord decide between you and I. Let the Lord judge on page nine. This was the guiding principle of David's leadership. Rather than taking matters into his own hands, he would allow God to supernaturally intervene in order to bring about the will of the Lord. David refused to usurp the authority that rightly belonged to God. He recognized that there was only one king, one lawgiver, one judge, one Lord. And David was intent on allowing the Lord to be the judge. David would not set himself up as the judge, but entrusted himself to the Lord. The one who judges righteously, and I would even take it a step further, he knows that the righteous judge loves mercy. Malachi 6.8, God has shown you, O oh man, what is good in his sight, to walk humbly, to do justly, and to love mercy. So Saul, he has an external response, but he also has an internal rebellion. Is that your voice? My son, David, Saul lifted up his voice and he weeps. I mean, can you imagine the fear? He's almost just died. And he has to recognize in this moment that God has allowed this situation to happen. He was totally vulnerable and exposed. And he's convicted because the one that he's trying to murder has just shown him mercy and he's, he's exposed for, for who he is. He's been saying the whole time stuff about David, his troops, that we're going to get this guy, this rebel, this one who's raising up against me, this one who wants to take my throne. And now every excuse that he has to kill David has been exposed as, as fraudulent. And he has to acknowledge, you are more righteous than I, for you have rewarded me with good, whereas I have rewarded you with evil. And you have shown this day how you have dealt with me. For when the Lord delivered me into your hand, you did not kill me. For a man finds his enemy, will he let him get away safely? Therefore, may the Lord reward you for the good that you have done to me this day. And I know indeed, you shall surely be king, and the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Therefore, swear now to me by the Lord, that you will not cut off my descendants after me, and that you will not destroy my name from my father's house. So David swore to Saul, and Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. So again, Saul reckoned, I mean, this is the same thing that happened when he got in the presence of Samuel the last time I was teaching when he's under the open heavens there. And uh, and all of his servants go forward ahead of him, and they all end up prophesying. And finally, Saul comes, and he ends up uh, stripping naked and prophesying in the presence of Saul, uh, in the presence of uh, David and Samuel. And and you know, likely what he's prophesying is the ascendancy of the king of David to the throne of Israel, just like he's prophesying that right here. But him knowing the word of the Lord wasn't enough because in his pride, he refused to act on it. And we go, well, how could he do that? But how many times in our life do we know? We know in our spirits what God is instructing us to do, but yet we refuse to move forward and do it. You would think if he's going, David, you're going to be king of Israel. Okay, let's make things right between you and I. Come back with me. I'll start mentoring you. We can start having weekly coffee and work on the transition plan. If he really was convinced that this was the word of the Lord, but instead he pays lip service and in some place he's convicted and aware and he knows, but then he just goes back to his old way of of being. And pretty soon in his backslidden condition, he's caught up with those same jealous, murderous tendencies and he's back at it again. And the Lord replays this same situation Uh, We won't read that next passage, but I'll just share it with you. Basically, the short version is Saul again a a short time later. He's after David to kill him in 1 Samuel 26 after repenting and confessing that, you know, you gave me good when I wanted to pay you evil. But now he's at it again with his assassins and David and some of his men sneak into the camp. And uh, it says actually that the Lord put a sound sleep over all of them. So the Lord actually made it so that they couldn't wake up. That's pretty cool. The supernatural sleep. And, uh, and before the temptation for David was to, and it's just amazing how the Lord, he'll just, he'll just subtly allow a little nuance to even give you an opportunity to give into that compromise to test your resolve to do what's right. And so before the situation was, David had to face, was he going to do this? In this situation, one of David's uh, mighty, mighty men, his main guy, let's see, Abishai, Abishai says to David, this is on page 10, God has delivered your enemy into your hand this day. Now, therefore, let me strike him with the spear right to the earth. I won't have to strike him a second time. And so David has to go, well, I I wouldn't be raising my hand against God's anointed. Abishai would be raising. And is he going to stay true to his conviction or is he going to play a little game with this opportunity? And here's the guy going, it's the word of the, it's his, it's his trusted comrade. He's going, it's the word of the Lord. The Lord has done this. Let me kill your enemy. And yes, the Lord has put all those guys to sleep and the Lord has given you this opportunity. But in order to, he again, this is the same thing. People around David who did not have the heart of the Lord, they recognized God's activity, but they were given to the wrong response. That should be a cautionary Tell to us, right? I mean, there's so many people, they discern the hand of the Lord in something. They go, God has raised up this politician or God has brought this judgment event, but they don't rightly discern the heart of the Lord. And so they respond not in mercy, but rather in some other spirit to the situation. And they're able to discern the activity of God, but they don't rightly respond to it. They don't respond to it with God's heart. But David says to Abishai, do not destroy him for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And as the Lord lives, the Lord shall strike him or his day shall come or to die and he shall go out to battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take the spear and the jug of water that are by his head and let us go. He goes, I'm going to let the Lord deal with him and I'm not going to... Now you look at him and go, do, do you have like a passivity problem David?" Because it seems like you have this same recurring thing where you have opportunity to kill your enemy and you choose not to. And uh, if, you were, if you were one of David's dudes who literally you're homeless and you're running for your life like day in and day out, it says Saul was pursuing him daily, right? And so this is not like, a, like this is warfare, right? So you're like fleeing and there's conflict and battle happening. And now the opportunity has come to strike a blow against the one that's pursuing you daily, causing you to be homeless and hungry and making your life hard. And David goes, no, I'm just going to let the Lord deal with him. And it's like, well, it seems like the Lord's trying to give you an opportunity here, David, to deal with this situation. Why won't you pull the trigger? And it's because David goes, I understand something about what God is doing here. And it's God is giving me opportunity after opportunity to show mercy. And he replays the same scene that he did it in Getty, where he wakes up Saul and he kind of mocks Saul's guards and says, you know, hey, you guys didn't even defend your king. And then he goes, look, I've got his spear right here and his jug of water. And Saul again recognizes, David, you could have destroyed me, but you chose not to. Um, and he goes through the shame spiel again, but uh, his, again, his heart is insincere in that repentance. And so... This is the last time that Saul and David will see each other face to face um, because within a short period of time, Saul will be slain. And the very thing that David said, perhaps he'll die in battle, will come to pass. Top of page 11, David was more interested in doing the will of God than he was in becoming king. Do you see that? God was, David was more interested in doing what was right in the sight of the Lord than he was in entering into whatever position of authority he had been promised. David didn't find identity in his success or his outward position, his title, or his standing with men. I believe he learned something as a young shepherd boy in the backside of deserts. While working the lowliest of jobs, he learned the defining factor for success in his life was not what he did, but who he was before God. And he understood that God was his shield and God was his reward and God was his judge and he was going to continually commit his life into God's hands just as he had before Goliath and just as he would in his final days before Absalom. And he learned that lesson and that lesson was driven deep into his life uh, through his experiences with Saul. All right. Let's skip forward. I encourage you to read some more in depth on that. I want to just get to our, our final lesson for tonight. On page 13, this is David's plan to establish his own kingdom in Ziklag. Are you guys doing alright? You guys with me? Mm-hmm. Okay, right awesome. Here. Good. It's the final 15 minutes of the 10-week course from 11 p.m. to midnight on Friday nights. You guys are amazing. 11 p.m. to midnight, hearing the word of the Lord. So David and 600 men with him left and went over to Achish, son of Maac, king of Gath. And David and his men settled in Gath with Achish. Each man had his family with him, and David had two wives. And Anoam and Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, the widow of Nabal, and when Saul was told that David had fled to Gath, he no longer Searched for him. And so what happens here? What was the word of the Lord to David? Go to Judah, right? Go to Judah. Go within arm's length of your enemy. And what happened continually? He's encircled by the mountain, at the mountain. And then the Philistines attack and he's delivered out of that trap. He's being pursued at Engedi. Saul wanders into the cave, gets convicted, withdraws his attack. Saul comes back to get him again. David's able to, a deep sleep falls on him. He's able to go in and get the jug and the spear. Saul's convicted again. But David at this point, for whatever reason, he's just grown weary of the grind of constant coming right up to the precipice and getting delivered, coming right up to the precipice and then getting delivered. The, the, the uh, rigor of the lesson, finally he, he um, uh, bugs out. Uh, to use a, a military expression, right? He gets tired of the grind and he goes, surely Saul, one day, for whatever reason, his faith gets shaken in this moment and he goes, Saul's going Saul's gonna, to uh, kill me one of these days. Now, why, after all the times that he was delivered, would he come to believe that? I don't know, beloved, but God's provided for you a bunch of times, but you got that bill coming. And sometimes, no matter how many times you see God miraculously provide, there's still that little thing that says, is he going to come through this time? And Saul, uh, David was just weak in the same way that we are. And though he's seen God's miraculous deliverance time and time again, the rigors of the trials that he had gone through. And finally he just goes, you know, I think I'm just going to go live in the land of the Philistines. It's kind of like the... uh, The Israelites come up out of Egypt and they've seen the wonders of the Lord and the Red Sea split. And they get out in the wilderness and they don't have the food that they want. And they go, I miss those leeks back in Egypt. And they had meat for us back there. And all we have is this bread from heaven. And they start to grumble, right? It's kind of like in that future millennial reign, the nations are going to be led by Jesus himself from Zion. But still, at the end of a thousand years, there's going to be a bunch of people that go, they come with pitchforks to the heavenly city to try and take down the king of Zion. Like, I don't know what they're thinking, but it's pretty consistent throughout human history, right? Adam and Eve in the garden, walk with God the cool of the day, and then they go, ah, I think I'm going to go with the fig leaf arrangement. It's just the wickedness of the human heart, right? To try and, for whatever reason, build our own kingdoms and cover ourselves. And Abraham, who grew strong in faith, though his body grew weak, he just worked a little uh, Hagar in there (laughs) along the way, right? And there are just times when in our journey, you know, but for whatever reason, God tends to kind of, in the retrospective of history, He smiles on us in in, in His mercy. But that's what we see David doing here. Because of a despair had taken hold of his life in a new way, he began to look at himself rather than the Lord to bring to pass the prophetic promises. David makes the decision to move his men and his family uh, and cross the line from patiently waiting on God to attempting to establish his own kingdom. Likely at this point, David has 2,000 to 3,000 people with him. And he takes that entire company and moves them to the land of the Philistines. So he's anointed to kill Philistines, but he decides to move into the land of the Philistines. 1 Samuel 27, 5 through 6, page 14. David says to Achish, If I found favor in your sight, let a place be assigned to me, one of the country towns that I may live there. Why should your servant live in the royal city with you? And so Achish gives David an entire town in which to raise his family. 1 Samuel 27, 7 through 12. David lives in the Philistine territory a year and four months. So this is David's year and four months of compromise. And what you'll find when you move into a place of compromise is your heart continually hardens and there are lines that you draw, but then you cross those lines. And by the end of David's season of compromise, he's actually come to the exact opposite position from where he was when he first began. And he's actually ready to go out to battle against the Lord's anointed. When time and time again, he makes the right choice not to go to war with Saul. And God actually has to supernaturally deliver him from making that horrendous choice. David and his men went up from and raided the Geshurites and the Gizrites and the Amalekites. And when David attacked an area, he did not leave a man or woman, but took sheep and cattle and donkey and camels and clothes. And he returned to Achish and when Achish asked him, where did you go raiding today? He would say against the Negev or Judah against Negev and Jeremiel. And he did not leave a man or woman alive to be brought to Gath for they thought he might inform on us and say, this is what David did. So such was his practice as long as he lived in Philistine territory. And Achish trusted David and said to him, he's become odious to his people, the Israelites, because he thought that David was going and, and striking Israelite villages when he was secretly striking the enemies of Israel. So now the moment of truth comes. First Samuel 28, 1 through 2. Now it happened in those days that the Philistines gathered their armies together for war to fight with Israel. And Achish said to David, you assuredly know that you will go out with me to battle you and your men. And David said to Achish, surely you know that your servant can do. He goes, let me, I'm going to show you. What an arrogant statement. David goes, yeah, let me go to war with you because I'm going to show you what I can do. And Achish said to David, therefore I'll make you one of my chief guardians forever. So after spending 16 months living with the Philistines, finally David is called uh, to, to come and fight with the Philistines against Israel. David strengthened his military and economic position. He has incredible momentum with his, with his people. He has leadership in an entire city. He and his men are beginning to flourish in the city. I believe this was a moment where David had planned for the entire time that he's in Gath. And when the lords of the Philistines, kings and others see David and his men mustering for battle, they object at the last minute. And I just want to make this point that backsliding and compromise, again, it makes you do things that you thought you would never do. And this was David's Hagar. It was his effort to do in the flesh what God had promised. And it's pretty, pretty remarkable because I think a lot of times you can see this as uh, you see in places like the political or the entertainment arena where there's someone who has been gifted by God in a particular area, but they start to use their gift for the counterfeit kingdom. See, David was given gifts by God of leadership and as a general and, uh, and uh, just all these different ways that David was gifted and anointed, but instead of using it to advance the kingdom of Israel and the purpose of God, he uses it to advance his own kingdom. And the gifts still operate, but he's using it for a counterfeit kingdom. So David said to Achish, What have I done? So Achish, they object and they say, we can't take this guy. They actually go, this is the guy that they sing about and say that Saul's killed his thousands, but David's killed his tens of thousands. And that song's about him killing us. We can't go to battle with this guy. And so David said to Achish, what have I done? And to this day have I found your servant as long as I've been with you that I may not fight against the enemies of my lord, the king. I know that you are as good in my sight as an angel of God, Achish says. Nevertheless, the prince of the Philistines said he shall not go up with us. Now, therefore, rise early in the morning with your master's servants. And as soon as you are up early in the morning and have light, depart. So David and his men rose and departed in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. And the Philistines went up from Jezreel. Now, what we don't realize is as all this is transpiring, it says literally Saul was in a frenzy with fear. The Lord would not respond to him. He saw in the massive armies that David was going to be a part of these Philistine armies. And this is where he actually goes and consults a medium. Uh, He had actually banned mediums from the the land under the penalty of death. But here we see him compromising his own decree and going and practicing occult things because uh, the supernatural had departed from him. The anointing of the Lord, the voice of the Lord had departed from him. He's in a frenzy of fear, and so he turns uh, to occult practices and this witch at Endor actually summons the spirit of of Samuel and Samuel prophesies to him, you and all your sons are going to die on the mountains tomorrow. And so the Lord actually sp- intervenes and spares David from being a uh, contributor to the death and defeat of Israel. Point E, God brings an end to David's attempt to build his own kingdom through alienating him from the Philistines, which requires him to return home unfortunately, the Lord is very good at disciplining us. And we'll see in a moment what happens when we try to build our own kingdom. First Samuel 30, then it happened when David and his men, and mind you, at this moment, when this is about to happen, David is seven days from being anointed in he- Hebron, But he does not know it. And he's about to take matters into his own hands that would have utterly derailed the purpose of God <laughs> for his life. And God, in his mercy, spares him And burns down the counterfeit kingdom that he had built. And it probably feels like he's maybe at the lowest point in his life. But that lowest point is about to produce something in his heart that will bring about a breakthrough. When David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid on the Negev and on Ziklag and have overthrown Ziklag and burned it with fire. They took captive the women, all those who were both small and great, without killing anyone and carried them off. And went their way. So all of David's 600 men that were just about to go to war with David, they were in the wrong place at the wrong time because they have been building their counterfeit kingdom. And now the consequences had come. They'd left their hometown exposed. And the very ones that they were raiding had now come back and raided them. And all their wives and children are kidnapped. And their whole city is burned. So you come back to your house. And there's no house. There's an ash heap. And your wife and your children are gone. That's about as bad a day as it gets. That's, that's bad, right? It's so bad that David's greatly distressed and the people speak of stoning him because they were embittered. And each one because his sons and his daughters had been stolen. David's men were conversing among themselves, discussing if they should stone David. They knew that he'd been lying to Achish, a, for, a foreign king, and by doing so, compromising their safety, safety their families. And they go, "We've been following you, David, all this time, and this is what has brought us utter ruin. Our families are gone. Our home is gone." And David, who's been living in compromise one year and four months, and he was right, and he, he was about to achieve probably what was his plan all along. I'm going to build my kingdom here, and then I'm going to advance into Israel. I'm going to defeat Saul. And then I'm going to take the kingdom. And God intervenes, redirects him, burns down Ziklag. And now, wouldn't it seem that the whole world had turned against you and God Himself had turned against you at that moment? And you know that you've done wrong. You know that nothing you've done deserves God to be kind to you in this moment. But yet it says, David strengthen himself in the Lord, his God. And David said to Abathar, the priest, the son of Abimelech, bring me the ephod. And David inquired the Lord saying, shall I pursue this band? Shall I overtake them? And he said to him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake them and will rescue all. From the place of compromise and massive sorrow, David stirs himself to lean into God. The Hebrew word that's there, that word strengthen himself, it literally means fastened upon. In this moment, David decides, I'm going to fasten myself to the Lord. At his breaking point, at his point when he, he had to decide, am I going to give in to despair or am I going to return to the Lord? He decides to return to the Lord. And you know what he receives? The same thing he would received every other day of his entire life, it was a good day or a bad day. He received God's mercy. 1 Samuel 30, 18. So David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away and David rescues his wives. Psalm 56. It is likely that David wrote Psalm 56 after he experienced both encounters with the Philistines and David calls out to God and asks for his mercy. Here we see David return to the standard rule of life, hoping in mercy. He knows that it's the one thing that he can count on despite the incredible compromise over a long period of time. He trusts in God's mercy. Psalm 56, verse one. Be merciful to me, O God, for man would swallow me up, fighting all day he's oppressed me. Whenever I'm afraid, I will trust in you, in God. In God I put my trust, I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? You number my wanderings, you put my tears in a bottle. Are they not in your book? When I cry out to you, my enemies will turn back. This I know, because God is is for me Saul and Jonathan die in the battle with the Philistines about Mount Gebor. and unfortunately for David he was not allowed to participate in the battle and the Lord kept him from shedding the blood of the Lord's anointing we're coming to a close Second Samuel 2 1 it happened after this the Lord inquired uh, David inquired of the Lord saying shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah the Lord said go up and said, he said, Where shall I go? And he said, Go to Hebron. Second Samuel five, four, David was thirty years old when he began to reign, and he reigned forty years. In Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem he reigned thirty-three years over all Israel and Judah. Seven days from his lowest point, he strengthens himself in the Lord. He overtakes the he overtakes the Amalekites, defeats them all, reclaims all that he had lost, reclaims his family, and at that same time, Saul is defeated, and then he's commanded by the Lord to go to Hebron, and he receives his first kingly uh, anointing, and for seven years he reigns there, and then ultimately rules over all of Israel. Psalm 18, when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Psalm 18, one, I just want to read this psalm in closing. I will love you, Lord, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my strength, and whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation. Psalm 18:3. I will call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised, so i be saved from my enemies. The pangs of death surrounded me. The floods of ungodliness made me afraid. The sorrows of shield surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. I cried out to my God. He heard my voice, and my cry came before him, even to his ears. Psalm eighteen, nineteen. he brought me out into a broad place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. David in Hebron is looking back over the previous seven years and, and even the previous 14 years of his journey, and he is seeing the complete deliverance of the Lord in his life and recognizing the reason for God's deliverance. He loves me. He likes me. He delights in me, not because of how I perform, but because of the greatness of his mercy. And David says, the reason that God has brought such incredible deliverance for me is because he delighted in me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for lessons from the life of David. And we throw ourselves upon the mercy of God tonight. And we thank you for your abundant delight in us as your people. We thank you that we are your excellent ones, your saints in the earth, in whom is all your delight. And I just pray, Father, for the revelation of your abundant mercy. I pray that we would live lives of mercy because you've shown such mercy to us, God. And that we would live, we would fling ourselves upon you because you are our rock. You are our God in whom we trust. What can man do for us? If God is for us, who can be against us? We'll trust not in horses or chariots. We will trust in the name of our God. Lord, we pray that we would not live for the favor of man or to appease their to appease their desires, but that we would live for the eyes of the Lord alone. We would trust in your unfailing love and mercy, God. I pray whatever lessons you're teaching us in this season of life, continue, God, to instruct us until we've learned them thoroughly. Lord, and where we would depart from your ways, where we would admire ourselves in what is less than your best, God, intervene. Intervene in our lives, Lord. Direct us back. We we, we trust you're a much better leader than we are followers. And we trust in your unfailing love and your mercy, God. Mostly tonight, we recognize our own weakness, our own tendencies. We see ourselves in David, Lord. And we say, God, thank you, Lord, that when we're like David, when we're weak and broken... That you are who you've always been. You are the God of mercy. We say we love you for that, Jesus. We love you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Yay.